0: Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I am here with Terry Fakes this week, and we're doing a quasi book review this week. And the thought hit me the other day: I've been putting out these monthly book reviews, uh-huh. and I almost think you shouldn't call them book reviews because that kind of sounds like we're all in fourth grade, and <laughs> you know we've got a Junie V. Jones book that we've got to do three paragraphs on a this report book? on. You know, and it's funny too when you're in school, you think book reports are so dumb, and here I am you know out of the goodness of my own heart and the interest of my own mind writing book reviews and we're here doing a book review i don't know if there's a better way to say this we're we're just walking through this book
1: As I've uh, gotten older and read a lot more books, book reviews have become very useful to me because I often want to know, do I want to read this book? Mm -hmm. And also sometimes a good book review means I have the gist of that and I can read some other things around it. Book reviews are, well done book reviews are very useful.
0: And they're very hard to do. It's hard to do a great book review. And it's really an art to read somebody who knows how to review a book well. Um, I guess book review. report is book a, report. We can't call it a book report. This yes. is not a book report. But I was going to say I saw something really interesting this week. So at Midwestern Seminary, Jason Dusing is their provost or he, the dean of students. I can't remember which one, but anyway, he reviewed Piper's new book on Providence, right, in Christianity Today. But what he did in addition to that was he wrote an article, and I think it's on his blog. Maybe I'll link to it this week in the weekly speak, but. He wrote an article about the process of reviewing that book, which I thought was really That's insightful. Interesting, because it gets into what are you thinking when you're reading? How are you? How are you maintaining that critical distance? Reading not totally as a skeptic, but not totally sympathetically either. Right? How do you organize your thoughts in order to make a critique that really lands? Um, how do you summarize the salient points without just giving them all the material of the book? Anyway, these practical questions. And the only reason I bring that up before this book is when, you, uh, when you're trying to appropriate a resource like this, I think there's a lot of good questions to ask. And we want to move through some of those questions. One of which being, what is this author trying to do? That's one of the things right. I thought was most important about this book. And for any review of a book, is not just what did you think about it? It's what was the author trying to do? And did they or did they not do it? Because right. they could have written a very excellent book that wasn't what they said they were going to do, and wasn't what they were trying to do. And in that case, from a critical perspective, it really wasn't a great book. Right. And you know, there's a lot of books where we're going to be on the topic of critical race theory, race, racism, race relations, um, biblical views on that. And there's a lot of books on that topic. And I think there are several good books on that topic that we're going to branch out to as we get through this, but... The first thought I had reading this book was he's trying to do something that's actually a little bit different than it. a lot of the literature that's out there on the topic of race, and specifically on the topic of critical race theory.
1: Right. He is trying to come at this in a way I, that I haven't read anyone approaching it this way. I've read some really good approaches, but not this way. And that's surprising, because I think Vody Bauckham comes at this subject as a Christian. Mm -hmm. simply as a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, and evaluates the claims based on that alone. Mm -hmm. And that should not be a rare thing, but on this topic, it is a rare thing.
0: Yeah, I think it is rare, and, and it was a little surprising to me. We'll get into his background here in a minute, because I did not encounter Bauckham in an area that would have led me to think that he has the chops to write this book. Right. Uh, we'll get into, he has a background in sociology, I didn't know that. I first encountered him as an apologist. Yes. You watch his videos. Probably best known. His sermons, His some of his other books um, have been apologetics book, and he's very sharp, very bright, very forceful, sometimes too, too forceful mm-hmm. uh, when he argues and debates and things, but um, he's coming from a standpoint of how do we apply a biblical worldview, a very conservative biblical worldview, to an issue like critical race theory? And I, I have read several books in the last couple of months, as I know you have as well, on this topic because I want to know what's going on. You know I want to know what are people thinking. Um, and I'll tell you in, in my last monthly book reviews, I, I had a short review. On uh, the book Reading While Black, which mm-hmm. is by Esau Macaulay. It is a good book. It surprised me. I was I had my defenses up with that book just because once you read the introduction, there's a lot of buzzwords and phrases in there that are kind of provocative. Usually red flags.
1: Yeah, there's, there's, there's mean, things really like provocative language. Is I just, usually
0: a red flag. I just don't know that I'm gonna see eye to eye with him on this. And 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 there's there's definitely parts where I don't, but overall, it was a great book. But It too, you have to know what it is that he's trying to do in this book. So in that book, he's not trying to write about the foundations of black theology or current issues as they stand and what we should do about them. He is trying to say there is a faithful way to read scripture that addresses the the present concerns of the African American, the black community. So does the Bible say anything per- pertinent to um, policing? Does it say anything pertinent right. to anger? Does it say anything pertinent to you know rising up to try to restore justice? Yes, it says things about that. And how can we faithfully read the Bible on those topics? And so each chapter follows that along. Well... Whether it's that book, whether it's Jamar Tisby's book, which are a little bit more historical, whether it's uh, Carl Truman's book, which is really philosophical, right. Whether it's Kendi and D'Angelo and those people who are coming from kind of a war, what was it, kind of a warped sociological right. perspective, um, Vardy Bakum's book is really different. Yes. it's really trying to take the claims of critical race theory down to the roots. And examine them in light of what we believe as Christians. So it's an unapologetically Christian book. It's investigating the topic of critical race theory. And it has a really intriguing autobiographical thread that runs through it yes. as well. Which one I of the was best good. parts. So I, I'm going to let you do a little overview of the book. Um, just starting at the beginning, what was your sense of the thread, how
1: the book moves along, and what Body Bacham's trying to do? Well, let me give you the brief overview. In the first chapter, it's entitled A Black Man, and he tells his story. And we'll come back and start there. There are a couple of things I think are very interesting in his story. Then chapter two is a black Christian. He becomes Christian a little later in his life, and his perspective as a black Christian. Those two chapters were eye-opening for me in a number of ways. convicted me to think about some things from a little different point of view than I ever have. So those two chapters are are a little autobiographical to get him into his subject. He then begins to engage the the, uh, original literature on this topic. Mm -hmm. He is an academic. You wouldn't necessarily think that, but he's very much an academic. And if nothing else, his bibliography and footnotes Mm -hmm. are worth the price of the book. When he makes that same point about himself... To
0: in this, he is a pastor in Zambia, yes, I believe. Right. He the funny thing is, if he's you follow him,
1: theology of the university, Christian university right. to turn out pastors there.
0: If you follow him on Instagram, he's huge into martial arts and all this kind of stuff. And so he even says this about himself in the book: you wouldn't think he was a college football player, right? And you wouldn't think that he would be the person who's really interested in getting down to the very small details into the primary sources. But that's just
1: the way his mind works. Yes. And you can see that come through in this book. And, and I love it that he is reading the primary sources. He's not reading about those sources. That You'll find that useful in this book. But he moves from uh, his biographical uh, portion of the book, and he starts to engage Kendi, who is, Abram Kendi is one of the proponents. He's not just a, a proponent in a popular sense. He's also a philosophical proponent of a very different way of thinking, which I know we'll get into in a little bit. And he begins to talk about the bias of the narrative of critical race theory. He's going to call it critical social justice because it is more than just race. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's beyond just critical race theory. That's an important
0: distinction that he makes, too. And I want to come back to this in our conversation you know, most of the people that are talking about critical race theory haven't read any critical race theory. Right. That's just not the way social movements work. Right. It, the, the literature often captures the feel and the sense and the motivation or gives a rationalization to what's already going on. And so what in these middle chapters, what Bauddy does is he extrapolates from the primary sources out into what's actually happening. So that's why I think critical social justice is probably a better term
1: that it is more because accurate. it's broader. It's, right. it's much broader. that's I agree. Well, he begins by looking at the narrative in chapter three. and then in chapter four, he points out that this narrative is really establishing a new religion in the sense that it has all the hallmarks of a religion rather than a scientific uh, theory. He also points out how it craftily uses familiar words. And he says, quote, hollows them out and puts new meaning inside them. Mm -hmm. He moves on and talks about group versus individual sin. You know, a whole group of people have committed sin rather than an individual. In chapter 5, he talks about the priesthood of this new critical social justice religion and who are the priesthood and what is their function and what does sin look like? And is there a chance at redemption? In chapter six, he talks about the new canon. In other words, what is their Bible, if you will? Mm -hmm. What is the set of non-negotiable beliefs? Chapter seven, he turns a little bit toward Christians who have embraced critical race theory. And he says, is it a worldview that's incompatible with Christianity? Or is it a tool for looking at social justice? Mm -hmm. Chapter eight, he broadens his perspective back out and he talks about poverty and abortion and some things that critical race theory has a very difficult time explaining. And then in chapter nine, he talks about the methods of critical race theory being integrated into the church in terms of sexuality, or gender, or race, and how that's playing out. And then finally he caps the book with the discussion of forgiveness versus looking back to right the wrongs of the past. Mm-hmm. So that's a basic overview of how he's traveling through the book.
0: Yeah, and to, to make sense a little bit of that overview, one of the, the main points that arises in the book is I think what he is really arguing is that critical social justice, the technical version, critical race theory, the popular version of what mm-hmm. you see on Twitter, in the news, um, that worldview is a competing religion with Christianity. And he's going to argue these things are incompatible. Yes. So the intriguing question that I want to ask you, because you just taught a whole series on this, but the intriguing question I think when you when you get about halfway through this book is, Okay, so if he's right, let's say that he's right, this critical race theory, critical social justice is a competing worldview that is actually um, incompatible with Christianity. Where, and this is where the title of the book comes from, are the major fault lines. You know, what are the major differences that he's pointing to in terms of the Christian worldview and a critical race theory worldview because a lot of people i bet bet several people listening to this are saying i'm not sold on that i'm not i'm not sold that these are truly incompatible it's you know there's a social split right now and it's become politicized and you know crt is this big boogeyman but nobody really knows what it is or what it means so let's put the burden of proof on bauckham for a minute what do you
1: think he sees are the major fault lines Some of the major fault lines, I'll I'll mention two or three, is first, the idea of identity runs through all of this book. And one of the big clashes is Christianity has a very clearly defined and central place to how we adopt our identity. And we find that identity in Christ. We find it communally, but first we find it individually as we individually our old self is crucified, and we are raised to walk in newness of life, as Paul puts it. Whereas in critical social justice, individual identity completely goes away. Mm-hmm. It is not a factor. I'm not saying if you ask someone who believed in critical race theory, do are people people and are they individuals? They would say yes, but that has no effect whatsoever on their view of history and the society and race problems. It doesn't matter what you have done. It matters what your group has done and you share that group identity. Mm -hmm. So group identity versus an individual identity is one of the major fault lines. And he will talk about how the church has bought in a little Mm -hmm. bit to this. For example, I think he takes on some uh, prominent evangelicals, mm-hmm. who, uh, who was it recently uh, that was quoted as saying, as a white pastor, I am part of the problem. Right.
0: So, yeah, he goes big time he, on that David Platt sermon. Yeah, he sermon. takes
1: on that in a, in a nice way. I mean, he's he disagrees, but mm-hmm. he isn't name-calling. He's simply saying, this is adopting the idea of your identity comes from your group, which is antithetical right. to the Scripture. So the idea of identity is one thing. The second Thing is the narrow focus. He spends a lot of this book saying, this is not an adequate explanation of injustice. So right. if you are a social justice warrior, if you are a Christian who's interested in bringing justice to the world, which we all should be, he said this point of view completely leaves out narratives. For example, what about blacks that were raised like him in, a, in an in area where he experienced some racism But he was not taught to be a victim, he was taught to take responsibility. Mm -hmm. That critical race theory doesn't account for blacks like that. Critical race theory doesn't account for white people who are poor, who've experienced uh, discrimination Mm -hmm. and oppression as well. It doesn't account for that at all. And so he begins to point out how true social justice is not captured in CRT, it's captured in Christianity. And then the third one I would mention and kick it over you to talk about this a little bit is fundamentally critical social justice because of its reliance on identities and because of its focus on a narrow set of oppressors and oppressed is a segregationist philosophy. Mm -hmm. Let me give you the simple answer. If you look at our nation and you say the way we're approaching racism now, is it uniting us or dividing us? It is dividing us. And anti-racism is inherently segregationist. If you hearken back to a more Christian approach, a more biblical approach with, say, Martin Luther King in the Civil Rights Movement, that was an integrationist movement. He didn't say, pay reparations. He didn't say, you're white, therefore go get sensitivity training. He didn't say, as Robin DiAngelo, all whites are racist and always will be. He said, I long for the day when the color of your skin... Is not what binds us together, but the content of your character. Right. And so, segregationist dividing versus uniting. So I'll stop there. Yeah. Those are some of the fault lines. Well, I think
0: this is the big. I think this is the big uh, point of entry for the church into this debate. Uh, and you know, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of rhetoric around in the church and against the church. And of course, we have a whole cottage industry of people now who claim to be in the church but make their living bashing the church. And so in the mix of all of that, it's gotten really confusing as to what are the specific differences between you know, a Christian version of racial justice right. and a anti-racist, and what Bauckham is claiming is an anti-Christian, in, in the sense that the worldviews are opposed to each other, they are, kind yeah. of vision of, of justice. And I think one of the things that's so um, pernicious is we don't have much sense of history, especially in the evangelical church when it comes to how racial justice has been um, fought for along Christian worldview lines. And so I I was really uh, discovering this last semester when I was teaching an ethics class. And one of the lectures that I did was at the ethics of race, because I think that there's few things more relevant to have our college students be thinking through than racism and the ethics behind racism. So we covered all these ethical systems and, um, you know, I wanted to talk about how this applies. And so what I did was I, I had the students read um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Letter from Birmingham Jail. Yes. And I think that that document is one of the most significant... Um, it's, it is one of the most significant documents in American history in terms of the the crossroads between race and religion. Yes. Because... Well, that that letter is not just an open letter to America; it is a letter to white churches, Protestant mainline churches, who are not fighting for justice alongside uh, Dr. King in the way that he wanted them to. So, if, if the first thing we got to notice about this letter is, it is an intramural dispute that Martin Luther King is. Um, opening up to all of his uh, allies in the church and all of his opponents in the church. Because he, he received terrible treatment within the church for a lot of the things that he was doing and advocating for. From both the black and white portions of the Exactly. Church. Right. So one of the things that he, he begins talking about is, um, he, he says, <clears throat> in a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to, this is in the I Have a Dream speech. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, we think of that speech because of the quote, I have a dream, which... I've, I've heard it was an impromptu hmm. part of the speech. Well, it was rhetorically well done. This
1: is probably substantively more important.
0: Right, because what he does there is he links not only the founding of America, the American ideals of the founding, but he also, in the letter to Birmingham, from Birmingham jail, links his Christian faith in such a way that these things can actually work together towards an achievable right. goal. And so, in addition to reading through that and having them talk through that, we could we could talk about that letter forever. But I also wanted to read the contemporary anti-racist group. So I picked the two most popular books: "How to Be an Anti-Racist" by Ibram Kendi and "White Fragility" by Robin D'Angelo. And what becomes apparent is two things. Number one, Kendi and D'Angelo do not believe that their anti-racist movement is compatible at all with the founding ideals of. The country. And that is a key difference. So it's, it, it, it must be an overthrowing and a rejection of American ideals like classical liberalism, not liberal politically, but liberalism in the sense of a free society with guaranteed rights uh, for all people in order to establish what they think would be an equitable society racially. But the second thing is they don't have any of the core concepts of grace, forgiveness, love, Uh, the endowment of dignity by a creator, the fact that we are not equal because of our achievements. We are equal because uh, we are all created in the image of God. None of that is present in these two authors. And so from Kendi, what you get is uh, the only way to remedy inequity, and we can get into the equity uh, equality thing if if we want to later, but I think that's become pretty common Mm -hmm. uh, for people to think through now. The only way to to remedy that situation is through discrimination. Right. So this this is a quote. I could not believe this is actually in his book. But this is on page 19 of How to Be an Anti-Racist. The only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. So in order to solve this problem, we must discriminate against certain groups of people. See, that's totally foreign to a Christian worldview, first of all, because in a Christian worldview, things are right or wrong based on the essence of the act. Right. Right? For Kendi, things are right and wrong based on the effect that they have on a certain group of people who are victims. Right. Right. So you as an actor can't actually— you you can't actually determine whether your actions are right or wrong. You have to wait and see what the effect is on an oppressed group or an oppressed person— and what they deem the action to be is what gives it its moral value. That's, that's not even remotely Christian. The second thing, though, Robin DiAngelo has a little bit of different flavor here. And, and this is, it's funny. You read her book, and she talks about how all white people are racist, right? A white identity is, an, a positive white identity, she says, is an impossible goal white identity is inherently racist. White people do not exist outside of white supremacy. That's page 149. Then you find out that Robin DeAngelo is white. Right? If you look up her picture, mm-hmm. you look up that she is white. And and then you read that white people do not exist outside of white supremacy. And you realize, okay, there's another aspect of this too, which is there is a determination. Right? These people are determinists. There is a determination to your outlook and your moral value just by the nature of the color of your skin. And these are the ideas that Bauckham really goes after. Is this, this is in no way Christian. Doesn't have forgiveness. Doesn't have grace. Doesn't have a way to reconcile people groups together. Doesn't have the love of God. Doesn't have the dignity in, inherent in all of us together as the human race. None of that exists. And so... What, came, what, I, what I found in this research was, and what Bachem stresses in this book is, racial justice can be done from a Christian worldview. And in fact, I think we should argue that it should be done. It should be done best by a Christian worldview. But the people who are leading the charge today are not Christian, and they're very anti-Christian in the way that, they, in, in the way that their worldview works. And Bauckham is going to basically end the book by saying, what would a vision look like for the church or for real Christians to begin talking about these issues? And, you know, the first place to start is you can't have a totalizing view that race is the common factor to everything that happens in in humanity uh, and
1: have a Christian worldview. I would agree with that. There are several key things in what you've just said. Let me point to the one that you you ended on, is critical theory in general, critical race theory in particular, is based around a totalizing worldview. What does that mean? It means you think this statement can explain all of human history and all of human relations, and here is the statement. It's cultural Marxism and I'm going to explain what that is briefly, but my point is that's not a criticism. That's not even debated. So if you say, oh my gosh, you're calling a Marxist. No, actually, everybody agrees. This is cultural Marxism, and here's what I mean. All of human history and all of human relations can be seen as the struggle between certain groups having power over other groups. That's it. It's that simple. All of human history can be explained in that way. So what is critical race theory about? If you're white, you're an oppressor. If you're black, you're oppressed. One of the things Baucom does, and he gives so many examples here, mm-hmm. I'll give you one in a minute, is he makes this claim, and this is self-evident. When you explain what's really going on here, people go, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And it doesn't. And that's why communism failed. But mm-hmm. because that worldview, it does not adequately explain. For example, that worldview doesn't explain Vodi Baucom. Mm -hmm. how can you be black and not agree? And so you've seen in the news blacks who say, I don't buy into critical race theory. And by the way, not just Christians say I don't buy into it. But the point is that makes you blind. That worldview makes you blind to you just cannot see certain things. Well,
0: it discourages you from thinking for yourself because it is a creed back to the religious, you know, there's a religious fanaticism that goes along with this. It, it, it removes the individual responsibility of thinking for yourself.
1: Well, and for example, it, it it does and gives you a creed, and that creed is not sufficient. For example, he talks about Derek uh, Chauvin, and he talks about that incident, and I don't think any of us have any disagreement about it, but he gives several other cases where the same thing happened to a white man. Mm-hmm. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that justifies it. What Bauckham is saying is... That view of everything can be explained in terms of racism doesn't explain lots of other events.
0: Well, and what's so interesting about that case that he points out is it has become the case. And you saw people talk about this. I mean, even uh, Joe Biden, President Biden was talking about this, that the verdict in this case is a verdict on American racism. Right. But Bawcom points this out and and this book was written obviously before the trial but he's yes. seen all of the lead up to it. The state doesn't even bring that up in their case. The case itself is not actually about racism. It's about police overreach or, you know, brutality, brutality or absolutely. you know there's a lot of threads running through it. Race just doesn't happen to be one of them in terms of the actual crime itself. Right. So what he's saying is we but because of this worldview, we have to impose race exactly. wherever we see injustice so, or, or inequity. So with Derek Chauvin, because he is white and because George Floyd was black, there's only one available option, one available way to explain what happened. In this, in this critical race theory worldview, and that is that it must be an act of racism. It is
1: all of white people oppressing all of black people. And the uh, cases that don't fit that narrative, and Bauckham points out several, and his point is this, you're never going to hear those stories because they, they're blind spots. Right. Flip to the Christian worldview. Christians understand this, racism, yes, but beyond racism, as the depravity of humanity, that we are sinful creatures and Christ is going to uh, sanctify us. But the point is, Christians look at those events, and to them, you can explain the white police officer brutalizing a white man by the same way you can explain a black police officer brutalizing a black man. It is sin. In other words, it's a much more comprehensive view of the world. Well, and
0: the thing, too, that Balkan points out is when you say that, a lot of people jump to Okay, so does that mean that we just deny that there's any racism? No. What happens is, instead of, instead of only having one solution, this is the, this is the right. classic, if you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Exactly. But what happens is Christianity, the worldview of Christianity, provides an entire toolkit, one of which does happen to be a hammer. Yes. One of them happens to be, we look at that, we say, that is racism, and yes. racism is sinful. and so it needs to be dealt with it can be paid for it can be forgiven and it can also be disciplined in the same way as every other sin the compelling lie at the heart of critical race theory I think and and Balkan points this out at the end of the book and a lot of people have pointed this out is this is the lie Any, any inequity must be explained by racial injustice so anytime you see something that is unequal The cause must be racial injustice. And I think the most simple pushback, like if we could just give one big takeaway from this part of this book, the pushback would not be there is no such thing as racial injustice. The pushback is there are more things wrong with the world than racial injustice. Yes. Racial injustice is not a good catch-all category because it doesn't explain things outside of this small blip in the history of the world where you have a society constantly looking back at race-based slavery, which most slavery in the history of the world has not been race-based. Right. And it doesn't answer anything outside of that frame. So I think one of his most significant pushbacks is, look, not every time you see something that uh, is unequal, that doesn't mean that there's racial injustice behind it. There could be, and there could be a combination of things, but CRT only allows you to see one source of inequality, one source of injustice, one source of of difference, and that is through the racial lens. I think that's a pretty devastating critique.
1: I would agree. It claims to be a totalizing worldview, but it actually only has a marginal view of humanity. Right. You know, the second big thing that you touched on, uh, just to change, pivot just a little bit, is, for example, Martin Luther King, and I think rightly pointed out, that the founding ideals of America are something we have a challenge to live up to because they did incorporate a Christian world view we have not lived up to them mm-hmm. critical theory in general critical race theory in particular says no actually racism is so embedded in the institutions that one actually has to tear this whole thing down and start over right very, very different approach to solving this problem.
0: Yes, and and if you read some of this literature, you have to ask yourself what kind of thing would they start over with? You know what right. what kind of what kind of framework could they possibly provide? This is this is one of the axes to grind that I have for the church's acceptance of critical theory, critical race theory specifically, which is it is it is by definition a destructive and reactive worldview. Right. Whereas Christianity is. A constructive worldview. We can build things. We can do things that are positive. We can make something from nothing. We We can make something good from something bad.
1: About the future.
0: And and critical race theory, critical theory of any kind, Marxism Mm -hmm. of any kind, does not have that kind of uh, availability because it is a deconstructive worldview. It is a let's interrogate actions and statements and words and um, you know psyches. So that we can uncover hidden motives and uncover uh, implicit bias and we can uncover power structures. That's what deconstruction is. And this particular kind of deconstruction is, let's look beneath every motive of every action and every statement to find the embedded racist angle that's behind it. That,
1: That worldview actually is incapable of producing anything. That's a great point, because if you read and, you, and there's not an explicit laying out of what then does the future look like in your view, the future at best, according to cultural Marxism, critical race theory in particular, is to swap the mm-hmm. groups that are in power. That's where reparations and anti-racism come in. It's, it's not sufficient to say, let's eliminate racism. Kendi would say that's not possible. In fact, you must discriminate the other way, as per the quote you were saying. So what do you end up with? You end up saying, well, the oppressors now move down, and the group of victims move into power. And what do you have? You have cultural Marxism. You now are the oppressor group. You now are wielding power, and someone else is the victim. And we start this whole cycle over, which is what Karl Marx said. All of human history is a struggle, a power struggle. So the future, according to critical theory, is continual struggle as power balances change. Yeah. That is a very different future than is painted by Christianity.
0: Right. I think the best thing you can say there is it's better to be the oppressor. Right. But but this is back to the point I made earlier, which is, but if that's what you think, and I, that's what Ibram Kendi thinks, it, then you don't actually think oppression is bad. You don't actually yes. think that being an right. oppressor is bad. You think that this group of oppressors is bad. Yes. But that if you were in their spot, you would do things differently and it wouldn't be as bad, but it would still be the same kind of oppression. So what we want to get to is we, we want to say, okay, but but is there a way to do this that is actually right, morally correct, as opposed to just swapping the balance of power, making a reparation, doing whatever? And that leads me to the question that, that I want to spend the rest of our time on, which is why is this movement so appealing to the church, right? We have a lot of of examples of people that in various uh, degrees have bought into kind of a critical race theory
1: in the church. Well, the best book I've read to explain this is uh, by Shelby Steele, fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford, who wrote a book called White Guilt. And he isn't writing about Christians. I don't even know if he is a Christian, but he was part of the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King. And his thesis is the the civil rights movement, the goals of the civil rights movement have been betrayed by both black and white people since that time. And we've contrasted critical race theory where we are now and Martin Luther King And he wants to look at that journey. And here's his explanation, Cole, to Christians and non-Christians alike, and Christians are more susceptible to this. People that look like you have done bad things in history. Mm -hmm. And the 1964 Civil Rights Act was white people's admission of that. But instead of being healing, which he saw as the promise of the civil rights movement, Black people instead realize white people just admitted their guilt. Mm-hmm. And I can have power by playing on my victim status. Right, And so for 50 years, instead of taking that to move forward, for example, he would say this is a far less racist country than it was 50 years ago. Nevertheless, he would say black people act more like victims than they did 50 years ago. Wow. And his point is, it's a, it's a brilliantly written book, and you may or may not agree with his thesis, but I think you'll find his facts very persuasive, mm-hmm. is that blacks have fallen back into, because of some of their leaders and because it's, it's an easier way out, is I can get things from white people by playing on their guilt. Right, Christians have a more sensitive, by and large, I'm, I realize I'm painting with a broad brush, Christians are more sensitive to the accusation of having done something wrong, have a natural desire to repent of it, and I believe, and he would agree, fall more easily into this white guilt. That's yeah. a personal opinion, and I found that book to be one that's well worth reading. Mm-hmm. That's compelling because I think what it gets to
0: is a fundamental condition of the human heart that the Bible tells us is there, but that our our secular culture does not accept as true. So we still have a secular culture that believes that hum- humanity is inherently good mm-hmm. and has been socialized into doing bad things. Right. Christians do not believe that. Christians believe that you actually were born with an internal sin problem. Mm-hmm. And everybody's sin put together means that we do bad things as groups as well. But... You can never get away from the fact that you have an individual responsibility for your own sin, and that that is actually the greatest problem that you face is that you are warped because of your sin. Right. So, when it comes to how to get rid of that sin, we, because we're created in the image of God, have a sense of how this works, right? You have a problem, you confess, you can be forgiven. You can be set free. You can be reconciled back to God. That's what the gospel is. But the problem is when you have this impulse, right? We know that we are sinful, and as Christians, we believe this. No matter how much you may, um, no matter how much you may uh, downplay or ignore your feelings of the conviction of your own sin, it's there. And what happens is if you downplay that. You have this sense of guilt, but you don't have a savior. Right? Then you don't. You have a huge reservoir of guilt that you don't know what to do with, and that we think that this is a fundamental part of the human condition. And societies can take this on too, because, like you said, um, you know there are big instances of societal sin. Right. People, people that look like you, people that live in the same place that you did. People that you're related to, you, you know, being Mm -hmm. the primary culprit here, have done bad things. And you want somebody to atone for it. Now, what is also true is we have a sense of biblical justice, which is, in the end, God is going to make things right. Mm -hmm. And people who have done bad things are going to be punished. And uh, God is going to have justice over the evil one. So both of these things combined, we're looking for someone to atone, and we're looking for someone to be the scapegoat, right? We're looking for someone to be atoned on. (laughs) And I think one of the things that happens in the church is we get this. There is a Savior, and there is right and wrong, and there is going to be justice. And then we let other people tell us what those words mean in a certain context, so in critical race theory, for example, or in the critical social justice world, you have an original sin, which is racism. You have a, um, you have a sense of justice, which is every act of racism ought to be punished. You, need, you might need to make reparations. You might need to confess. You might need to do all those things. The problem is you don't have any absolution, you don't have any real forgiveness. You don't have any concept of grace. So what people do is they admit that they've done something wrong and this is almost like leasing your forgiveness. So if you will admit your privilege, if you will admit to racism in the past, if you will commit to be educated, if you will do all of these things publicly, then that will buy you a little bit more time before you need to do it again to release the forgiveness that you have been given from these other groups. And it's pretty easy from that description to see why people are really frustrated at each other. That's not a way that a society is going to work well because you have the people who are constantly doing that who are never actually getting the forgiveness that they seek. And you have the group of people who are imposing that through victimhood, which this is really the crazy part of it, through their own victimhood, perpetuating their own victimhood, who are never getting the
1: justice that they really desire. Right. And that's a big societal issue, I think. That's why there's far more pushback to critical social justice theory, critical race theory, than just Christians. In fact, it's growing from sociologists, scientists, public intellectuals. This point that you just made, leaving religion completely out of this, this won't work. Mm -hmm. This worldview is so very flawed that it will not lead to any kind of human thriving. And you're starting to see more arguments from that point of view. As usual, the church is trailing some of the culture in that regard. And the church is is still seeing critical race theoretical ideas coming into the church. And you see people trying to seek absolution when the best you can get is a very temporary postponement. It's the idea of uh, which we do not uh, think of, and that is penance. Mm-hmm. Is one must pay perpetual penance for sins committed in the past for people who look like you. Bauckham, by the way, coming back to the book ends uh, when he starts talking about forgiveness uh, at the end and the idea that there isn't uh, for you know. Forgiveness is a real thing from a Christian point of view, not from critical race theory. And here's his point. The way forward is forgiveness of what has happened in the past, not, and this is a quote, groveling over historical dirt. Groveling over historical dirt and continually admitting uh, wrongs is never going to get you past that. Mm -hmm. Whereas forgiveness is, in his view, the only thing that can get us past this as a society and as individuals.
0: You know, I want to bring in another book here that I think is really helpful, and I I want to do a podcast on this book as uh, as well once we... uh, When you finish your book report? When I finish my book report, uh, which is Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Which I think is probably one of the most important books of the decade. And it is
1: not an easy read, but very profound. Well,
0: and I did see that coming out in the spring, so early 2022, there is a shorter version, less technical version of this book. So this, this book, I don't want to sound like, oh, you couldn't possibly read this book. It's just, it, it really is a commitment. It's over 400 pages. It's very philosophical and it's pretty technical. Um, but but it's worth the read, and I think anybody who sits down and says, you know, I'm going to commit the next month to reading this, or next two months to reading this, w- will be blown away. But I am also thankful that Crossway is producing a shorter, about 200 mm-hmm. page, less technical version that you can read through. That's a lot easier to talk about, be right. a lot easier to give to somebody and meet, you know, every week or two and talk about it. But one of the things about that book that uh, really resonated. So that book is a a kind of a philosophical history of modern concepts of identity. Yes. How do we get to where we are now where we think that the modern identity is defined by your feelings of psychological well-being, your expression of your own sexual desires, and the making of yourself by exerting your emotional preferences on everyone else? How do we get to that point? And it, it, in some ways, it's a, it's a meditation on the, the transgender phenomenon. How did we get to a place where we all know what the sentence, I am a male trapped in a female body, means? Because never, never in the history of the world could you have said that. It would have been unintelligible. And it makes, and it makes sense. In the
1: history of the world. So it's a very important phenomenon. Right. And he, th- what he gets to
0: is he says, you know, the self is now constructed based on a lot of different trends. And uh, the place that it intersects the the discussion about race is, especially in the church, Alistair McIntyre said this first, and I think Truman kind of quotes him in this, but basically our moral sense as a society is not driven by debating propositions and whether or not they're right or wrong. It's by asserting our moral preferences onto other people. Right. So if morality is defined by my subjective sense of therapy, basically, whatever gives me mental well-being, um, which he would call emotional preferences, then number one, it's completely and totally unpredictable to everyone else. And two, it doesn't have to accord with reality
1: at all. And to interject here, that's why on a practical level, if you hurt my feelings you are morally wrong. Right. It comes from this very idea. And that's the perfect segue into why I think this is a huge issue for the church.
0: So the church has bought this hook, line, and sinker. I mean, because it is so close to some of the things that we actually do believe. Mm-hmm. So you have churches now, you have kind of a quasi-Christianity now, who has defined sin, sin, and injustice and grace and forgiveness all along the lines of that emotional preference rather than along the lines of what God has actually said in his word. So that's why it's hard for Christians to say something like homosexuality is sinful. It is sinful. right? That's It's, it's hard to say. You even check yourself when you say that now because you think, what would people think if I said that? Right. But that's the point. The Bible says that categorically. You know, in the same way it says racism is sinful, yes. categorically. You can find that all over the Bible. It is, they don't use the word racism, but you can find this all over the place in the Bible, right. this theme that racism, looking down on someone, thinking they are less of a human being, denying the image of God in them because of their skin color, is right. wrong. This is not a question. What is a question is the pressure from from people who are playing against, whether it's victimhood, whether it's psychological trauma, whether it's Hurt, whether it's triggering, you know, whatever these things are that are subjectively defined, and imposing that on Christians and saying, no, that is really what sin is. So, Kendi has an interesting quote in in his book. He he thinks that he is a Christian. Um, I think we can safely say, and I'm not just saying this personally. I think biblically speaking, we can safely say that if this is it, then he is not a Christian, right? Uh, because on Easter, he he tweeted. Uh, that the great promise of Christianity is that we can atone for ourselves. That's not Christian. Mm-hmm. In the book, what he says is, um, he, asks his, he, he asks his dad one time what it means to be a Christian. He says, a Christian is one who is striving for liberation. See, this, this is where we've gotten really wonky in the church. Liberation is a Christian uh, value. Liberation from sin, liberation from some, some kinds of oppressors, liberation from the slavery of sin, liberation from actual slavery. There are a lot of kinds of liberation in uh, the Bible, but we've gotten our wires crossed to where any time anyone defines oppression in their own life, we feel like we must take the opposite side. We must take the side of the person who is being oppressed. But not all, not all kinds of oppression in our society are biblical oppression. Right. So what we've done is we've used these terms and we've adopted this mindset where we have this floating subjective definition of who has been sinned against. And we as Christians say, well, we have to be against sin and we have to be with the people who have been sinned against. But it turns out the categories are crossed. And so we have a lot of people in the church trying to do the right thing, and I commend that. Um, And by doing that, they've smuggled All of this critical race theory into their church as the new way of seeing what is sinful and not sinful. As opposed to the Bible defining what is sinful and not
1: sinful. Right. Baucom puts it this way when he's talking about Kendi's book, he quotes him in this. But Baucom says this I believe as a Christian, our number one agenda is to see people delivered from the penalty and power of sin. And the way the church I I serve in says it is to help people find and follow Christ. And and I think that's a very biblical Mm -hmm. point of view. It doesn't mean there aren't other things that we will do. But if you said, what what did Jesus charge us with is to help people find and follow Christ, or as Baucom says, help take them to Jesus and he will deliver them from the penalty and power of sin. On the contrary, here's a quote from Kendi. The job of the Christian is to liberate oppressed people from their oppressors. It really takes some, something that's a, a, that's a subset of what Christians will do and makes it the main thing, and you lose the gospel.
0: Well, I want to say this bluntly. If you get to decide what oppression is, right, uh, eventually God becomes an oppressor. right? Because the biggest problem right now in the church is we're unwilling to say no to anything. And God has laid down there are certain things you must say no to. It's the only way to be healed from them, actually. right, uh, You must say no to sin. You must confess that that you are wrong in the way that you're oriented towards God and towards the world outside of Christ.
1: Yeah, whether it's your pride or your greed or whatever it may be, our self-centeredness, all those things are oriented uh, wrongly toward God. And there's no amount of rationalizing in a biblical point of view where I can justify that.
0: Right. And so doing things that are sinful, and then when someone says that they're sinful, you say that you're being oppressed— that's not a Christian category, right? That, like I said, if that's the way you view things, if you get to decide that anybody who disagrees with you is oppressing you, then soon God becomes an oppressor, right? And this is this is back to the point of I have a lot of compassion for the ways that the church is trying to solve this problem, um, even in misguided ways, because at the end of the day, we do want to bring people to Christ, and. We want to help people that are in need. Yes. And we want to make the world a better place. You know, right. these are these are not opposed to the gospel, but they're downstream from the gospel. And uh, the critical race theory swaps the order. Right. In fact, it kind of erases the whole God part of this in a lot right. of ways. But it basically says if you want to make the world better, then you have to do this. You have to be an anti-racist. And uh, as Christians, we should be pretty confident to say we do want to make the world better, and we aren't going to do it that way.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: So your closing thought from Bauckham, I can see a lot of people disagreeing with him. Of course, he is a little bit inflammatory sometimes, but you can't really dismiss his work because it's really well-researched. It's well-argued. It's his own experience for parts of it, but uh, most of it is based on what people are saying and writing and doing. It's hard to argue with a lot of his conclusions. What's your, what's your response to Bauckham if you have one?
1: Well, the problem that I think if you disagree with Bauckham is getting beyond just saying, I disagree with Bauckham. That gets no one anywhere. The problem that you're gonna have to face is, Bauckham is laying out a case based on what critical race theorists say. He's not building a straw man. He's also pointing out things in reality, facts. So if you wanna engage Bauckham, you can't just call him names, can't just call him an Oreo, I mean, this happens, but the point is there's no intellectual integrity in just calling him names. The problem is he's not building a persuasive case. He's trying to build a logical case to say, look at these these events and explain them through critical race theory. It can't be done. People have to uh, take Bauckham on the terms of evidence Mm -hmm. and argument, rather than the, are the basis of feelings and emotivism. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that you do not is the extent that we fail to engage Malcolm. Mm-hmm. Right. And the problem is most people are still, still believe that truth is conformance to reality. Even though in critical race theory, truth is how you perceive the right. way things are happening. Yeah, I think Bachem is
0: persuasive. I think he is bombastic. He loves a good fight, and that will deter people mm-hmm. from reading it. But I agree with you. You can't just say, I don't like this. you got to say, what do you disagree with? Right. What's he off base on here? And you he may not like his approach. I, I think his his approach is fine. I've, I've read books by Bachem that are a lot more aggressive than this one. I was kind of surprised that here he's a little bit toned down from what he usually is. Right. Um, You know, my thought going away from this book, and I'll let you have the the last word on this, but my, my thought going away from the book was, I do wish we were in a place as a church where we were, and I think this is true some places, so I don't want to discount this, but I do wish we were at a place in the church where we were strong enough in our own sense of what we've been called to do with respect to racial justice, that we didn't have to be guilted into the critical race theory of people like Ibram Kendi and Robin DiAngelo. Right. I just wish we can articulate. We do believe that Christians understand um, God's design for human beings to live together. And we do it imperfectly. But we also have been called to disciple all the nations. So at the end of time, there's going to be every tribe, every tongue, every nation. This is the big reconciliation effort. right? And we should be confident enough in that. that We start that by doing what God says. We can... We, do the Great Commission. We go and we share the gospel and we teach people to obey. And as we do that, we do expect that by living by the Spirit, we're going to bring racial reconciliation, among other things, to our world. I wish we were confident enough in that, that we didn't feel guilted into needing the anti-racism CRT bunch of
1: methods for confronting racial reconciliation. I would jump off of that and have a very similar conclusion. The gospel is powerful because it does not use the categories of the world. It does not use the definitions of the world, whether it's love or sin or whatever. It brings God's revealed definitions of reality to the world. The church will quickly, quickly cease to be relevant at all if we begin adopting the categories and the definitions and the ideas of the secular world, in this case, critical race theory. If we try to influence the world through the language of critical race theory, we will have lost the entire power of the gospel.